Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 90 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, let's get into the game fight. Let's do this. The Canucks' first game of the week was against the Chicago Blackhawks. They ended up coming up with a 4-1 victory. Connor Garland had a goal and an assist, and the Canucks kept on rolling into the weekend. What team handed the Seattle Kraken their first ever home loss? And what team has the Vancouver Canucks never lost to? The Canucks beat the Kraken 4-2. Connor Garland with the winner and a helper as well, and Bo Horvat with a pair of goals. The Canucks finally played the first home game at Rogers Arena. Unfortunately, they did lose to the Minnesota Wild 3-2. Alex Chason and Bo Horvat were the goal scorers for the Canucks. Hey Doug, it always seems that we record after losses, eh? I mean, like I wish we'd recorded after Chicago or Seattle, but uh, again, we get the Minnesota trap game, it felt like, uh, Minnesota of 2004, and uh, we get to record after that. Yeah, I mean, I think that trap game actually has double meaning because, like you said, it reminded me of the 2004 Minnesota Wild, and it was kind of a trap game for the Canucks coming off two big wins against Chicago and Seattle, having their first home game in over 500 days, I think it was, and then unfortunately, uh, they come up short against the Wild. The crowd in the stadium, I was at the game last night, was electric, though. Uh, It was a really good atmosphere. And again, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to judge, but I could tell the crew working the game. There were some issues like the pizza stand ran out of pizza, <laughs> the mini donut stand, the 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 debit machine because they're only taking a card, they're not taking cash. The debit yeah. machine wasn't working, so the ladies go, like, oh, if you could walk to the other side, there's another uh, mini donut stand there." Got there, that poor girl is like, "My machine's not working either." You can go down to level one, section 121. I'm like, man, the period's about to start. I'm guessing no mini donuts for me. But again, it was it was dress rehearsal, we'll call it, for a lot of the staff there. But uh, it was good to just be back in the building. And I could tell the fans were definitely into the game. No mini donuts. That's a, that's a tough one for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, about the atmosphere in there and just, just what it felt like and uh, having Bonnie crank the horn in there and our boy Juggy singing the anthem as well. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was great. Uh, Juggy absolutely killed the American anthem. Congratulations to you, uh, friend of the show. Uh, you did an incredible job. Bonnie Henry cranking the horn. I know there's a lot of people who have their takes on Bonnie. I don't think she's got an easy job. And to go out and face the public as often as she's had to do during the uh, the pandemic, I think she actually deserves some praise. And yeah, it was just nice to see Canuck fans, man. Like Canuck fans were fired up. Like you had the odd idiot just yelling stupid shit here and there. But overall, it it was just nice, man. It was nice to have... Everyone jump up and cheer and high-five strangers again after the Canucks scored a goal. Yeah, man, that's got to be that's got to be a nice feeling. I, I'm pretty sure we said a long time ago that Bonnie Henry would be doing uh, the siren at the the first Canucks game. I was not at all surprised uh, to see that. Juggy uh, guest on our last episode. Really interesting hearing his story. Uh, I thought he looked really dapper out there as well, and just just killed it. So that was great to see. And um, is it what, what do they tell tell you about wearing masks in inside? Do you have to wear a mask when you're sitting down, or like what what's the go with that? What are they What are they actually saying uh, in the arena? 
Yeah, so you're meant to have to put your mask on unless you're actively eating or drinking. But I also think it's like, and obviously, like, I understand the whole thing. I mean, at my work, you know, it's the same thing, right? Like, you guests have to be wearing masks unless they're actively eating or drinking. But I also think it's like super sleuthy way to try to sell more beer because everyone's just buying beer so they can hold their beer in the hand and not have their mask on. Totally. I mean, it's it's a great technique to sell more more beer. What's the beer selection like in there this year? Uh, they actually had some Moody Ales. So I only grabbed one beer, Ooh. but they had uh, a Moody Ale. It didn't say what Moody Ale it was unless it was just Moody Ale. But uh, they had Moody Ale and then the standard Budweiser. So I grabbed myself one of those and... Uh, yeah, it was it was a solid night all around. Despite the outcome of the game, it was really good to just be back in the building. All right, so I'm looking forward to getting into a couple of games here soon myself. Uh, I couldn't make it last night for a couple of reasons, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm stoked as well. And I was also just kind of curious to to see how it all played out. And it looked, at least on TV, it looked like uh, that from the ago times. Really, it looked like times of old. We haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah, they actually did it pretty smartly. So at least the we went through gate two. So they had the vaccine passport check there with your ID. And then once you got up the stairs, then you would hand your ticket in. So they weren't doing it all together. They kind of staggered that, which I thought was smart. Because I think it would really slow the process down. People pulling out their vaccine passport and their ID, then pulling out their ticket. Because all the tickets are electronic now. Uh, So that was kind of smart how they staggered it like that. So it was relatively quick. The lines were big, but they moved pretty quickly once uh, everything started moving to get into the building. Uh, big lines, trouble with ATMs, idiots yelling random stuff. It really is the ago times. It's like a, it's like they never left. Overpriced beer and food. I mean, hey, yeah. I mean, what else do we go to the stadium for, right? Yeah, you spend more on food and beer than you do on the ticket, and the tickets aren't cheap. It's uh, yeah, it's never uh, never a cheap night out. But man. Uh, we love doing it. Um, hey, we should get our plugs in here. Uh, and just also what's coming up on the episode. Uh, we have Trent Leith joining us from stadiumchinatown.ca, which is a really good Canucks, I say blog or website. They, him and Braden uh, do a lot of really good articles and good takes. It's, just, it's another great resource out there for Canucks fans to go and check out. Yeah, uh, looking forward to our conversation with Trent. Uh, first time on the show. Hopefully, we'll get him on again on a future episode. We had Braden on a past episode. And uh, yeah, check out the stadiumchinatown.ca blog, fan website. Uh, they're putting out roughly two articles a week, and it's definitely worth the read. Yeah, and they do a good newsletter feature as well, so you can always uh, sign up for that. So, anyways, we got a good chat with him. We'll, we'll talk all things Canucks. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore Gas, and the podcast is at Canucks Speak. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. And be sure to check out the playlist Pete and I continue to build on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. Another funky jam's getting added to the list at the end of this episode. So, Deb, before we get into all the Canucks chatter, um, we always like to talk about things that uh, that can be harder to talk about because we think it's worse to not say anything. And this situation in Chicago is not good. Uh, it's uh, and look, I I need to do a little more reading on it. I've been just slamming busy the last few days. Uh, I know that more things came to light today with player one of the players identifying himself as well um i haven't dug a lot into it so i am a little bit behind um 
But Doug, I know before we were recording, you said a couple of interesting things uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to the podcast is well aware of the story in Chicago right now. But just in case you don't, there was allegations of sexual assault and sexual misconduct by one of the coaches against a young player on the 2010 Chicago Blackhawks team. The team officials and players allegedly were made aware of it and swept it under the rug because they didn't want to disrupt team chemistry as they were in the middle of a playoff run. And the kind of the acts and the findings of the investigation kind of fell yesterday when Stan Bowman, longtime GM of the Chicago Blackhawks, stepped down. Uh, I believe there was another person involved. I, I forget his name. There's another senior management person who stepped down or was fired of the Chicago, from the Chicago Blackhawks. Stan Bowman also has been relieved of his duties as the GM of the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, and then t- tomorrow, I believe Gary Bettman has an in-person interview with uh, Coach Quinville, uh, who's now in Florida. And there's an interview coming up with uh, Shovel Dayoff, the GM of the Winnipeg Jets, as I believe he was the assistant GM at the time as well. And there was a couple of players, former Canuck, Brent Sopel, said that all the players knew about it and the team officials knew about it. And again, it was their decision to decide to sweep this under the rug and try to move forth to win a Stanley Cup. And obviously when you're covering up sexual assault in in any way it is criminal in my opinion and obviously there should be severe ramifications and the fact that the team is trying to still say or the team was a part of me uh trying to say that they didn't know anything about it until the summertime until after the stanley cup run and this investigation that just took place proves all of that was a lie stan bowman lied joel quinville lied uh, I, I think some of the players lied. I know today there was an interview with Duncan Keith and he said he had no idea that that had happened. And yet there are other players saying, no, every player on the team knew there were homophobic slurs directed towards the player who had been assaulted by the coach. And it was just boys being boys, I guess, which is disgusting and horrible. And the player who was John Doe up until today, had an incredibly powerful, powerful interview with Rick Westhead of TSN. If you haven't watched the interview yet, please do. Kyle Beach was the player that was assaulted. And again, take the 10, 12 minutes to watch that interview because it is some of the most powerful stuff you'll probably watch in a long time regarding sports and sexual assault and the misconduct that happens behind the scenes and how teams unfortunately often cover things up like this all for the sake of winning and yeah uh it's it's pretty ugly right now and it's it's kind of sad uh being a fan of the nhl right now when you see stuff like this yeah it's it's awful it's really sad and i mean we've heard a lot more of these things come to light in various sports over the last few years and there's there's definitely a pattern there where teams or organizations have not put in the proper credit or training to staff to make sure that it's a safe environment for athletes. And this is, you know, this is something we've heard from U.S. gymnastics before. We've heard it in, in other leagues as well, in, in other organizations with Olympics. And 
this is something that I I mean I do feel that awareness has changed in 11 years I think that I like to think that some of the attitude may have changed but I still think that every league every team needs to be doing more to make sure that players are safe I mean this is a million dollar industry multi-million dollar industry players are are trying to make it they're trying to do what's best for their career and they can't have shit like this come up that compromises their safety and their career at the same time so i i I haven't had a chance to watch that interview i'm going to do that tonight um but you know i i wish him all the best i think he's very brave for coming out and doing what he's done but if this Chicago team knew about this and at the time, which it sounds like they did, and uh, they were covering it all up, I mean, geez, that is a bad, bad, bad look for that organization and for the NHL as a whole. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, it's just it, it's a really ugly mark on the game. But even more important than the game, it's just the people involved and the lives that this has. I don't want to say ruined, but greatly affected. affected. Exactly, yeah. and disrupted. I mean, the, the other allegation that hasn't come out officially yet, which I think would be incredibly damning, is that after this whole incident had happened and in the offseason, the Chicago kind of mutually agreed to say to this coach who sexually assaulted or made sexual advances to Kyle Beach to part their own ways. And then, again, there is chatter out there that the Chicago Blackhawks gave him an endorsement, gave him a reference, and he went to another college or another high school job and assaulted another person, Mm -hmm. which is, like, unbelievable. And so, I mean, to me, there should be criminal charges for that. The fact that they allowed this behavior to continue to escalate and continue on where it affected somebody else another victim for for no no reason whatsoever it's yeah man it's a black eye in hockey it's a it's a black eye in you know sports culture in general and you know it's that whole thing of like you know by any means necessary we're gonna win it's just like no man no there we're still human beings that are playing this game and it's just like people People need to come first. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned boys will be boys, or and you know, old boys club, and the old attitudes of hockey. Hockey is always dug in with old attitudes, and uh, you know, we've seen it with relics like Don Cherry. They say things without even realizing how inappropriate they are at times. And you know, I do hope that, like I said, that this brings more awareness to the problem across sports. Um, I also hope that as we work more with inclusivity into the game, which the NHL has preached and a lot of teams preach it. I I think the Canucks have done a good job here in Vancouver. Uh, I think it's, this is going to get more and more important uh, as time goes forward. So I do hope that this leads to a shift in a bit of that culture and this whole boys will be boys and macho, macho man kind of mentality that hockey players and a lot of athletes have. I do hope that, that starts to drift away and uh, we start to see a more human and compassionate side to, to people when they uh, go about the game and they go about life in general. 
Yeah, and I, I also think it, it takes other players to call bullshit, right? To, to, to call something out. If they see somebody doing something wrong, they need to stand up and not let the person who was just victimized be all alone and expect them to have to stand up all by themselves. They need to stand up behind them and support them and call that kind of stuff out. And to me, that sure. is what really needs to happen. And unfortunately for Kyle Beach, it didn't happen. And I do wonder, he was a guy in the 2008 draft that a lot of Canucks fans were hoping we would have drafted. I believe he's a local kid. And the Canucks ended up taking Cody Hodson, but I wonder what his career and his life would have been like if he was a Vancouver Canuck instead of Chicago Blackhawk. But I think you hit the nail on the head, Pete. Kyle Beach is incredibly brave and incredibly strong, and hopefully, you know, he gives the courage to other young men and women out there who are victims of, of sexual assault to stand up and to have their voices heard. Yeah, and that's that's well said, and I think uh, I think that's where we could leave this because we could uh, we could go on about this for a while. Um, like I said, on my end, I need to uh, absorb a lot of this a bit more as well, um, and uh, I'm going to do that, and maybe we'll continue this next week. But I don't want this to be uh, a conversation that dies in sports. This is something that's really important uh, for sports uh, in general, not just hockey. Um, so. You know, I, I'm I'm glad we got to chat about it. But uh, what I want to see now is uh, what comes next. How do teams make it so that players aren't alone in this? How to make it so that people can safely report? How do you make safe work environments? I mean, this is something that I mean we talk about sports, but it goes beyond sports as well. Is uh, uh, I like to think that there has been some changes in society and culture over the last decade, but we're not where we should be yet. Uh, that's for sure. Well, Doug, um, on that note, uh, let's get, uh, Trent on the line here and, uh, let's talk some Canucks. Joining us, we have our guest for the week, Trent Leith of StadiumChinatown.ca. No affiliation to the TransLink site. Trent, how are you doing? I'm not bad. How are you guys? I am doing okay over here. It's been a busy day, but looking forward to chatting some hockey now with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be in a much better mood. I'm sure we all would be if the Canucks would have uh, came back and got a two points from the Minnesota Wild last night. But uh Glad to have you on the podcast, Trent, and looking forward to the discussion we're about to have about this up and down season so far for the Canucks. Five games in, six games in. That's seven games in, isn't it? Are we seven now? I don't know, but it's, it does certainly have that up and down. Um, Trent Leaf is our guest again. Trent L14 on Twitter and Stadium Chinatown is STDM underscore Chinatown on Twitter. Let's uh, let's start things off, Trent, with uh, an article you did recently um, about the Canucks lines and and Travis Green and how he's deploying them. So we've uh, we've already alluded to it. It's there's a bit of an up and down with this team. I don't know. I thought the Minnesota game really kind of felt like the Minnesota Wild of old. It was just, you know, the, the trap blanket game it was just very tough to get excited about, especially given the home opener. But what do you think about? the way green has been deploying his lines so far. Now I know that's a loaded question, so you can answer this any way you want, but what are your kind of overall thoughts on the forward situation? I think 
like obviously the some guys just aren't firing like Pedersen, obviously Miller to a lesser degree. Um, but I think a lot of it has been Green just way overthinking things. And a lot of not every time, but on power play rollouts, especially, and on five on five, like what was it? The fifth game was the first time we got the lot of line back um, for any measurable amount of time. There was a couple games with Besser deeper down in the lineup, uh, but it just, that's the best line. The team wasn't playing well and it just, he was throwing the lines in the blender when I think I, in my last article I wrote, I said, you've already hit the lotto. Why keep playing? Like you have the lotto line and it just seemed like, Travis Green wouldn't put those guys together. He was trying every combination beyond that. And I didn't understand why. We brought in Jason Dickinson as a third-line center to allow Miller to be on the wing, on the top line, where he's best deployed. And it just it wasn't happening. It was driving me nuts. Um, and in the last game, things kind of got put back in the blender only because Dickinson got hurt, which just as a lot of line gets going, it's kind of frustrating to see. That's that's the way it works in Vancouver land uh, is as soon as you think, hey, we got some pieces back, someone else go down. We saw that with the Besser and Hughes tag in and out earlier in the, the year as well. So I think it's safe to say then you're a fan of keeping the lotto line together. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, like I said, you you hit the lotto with it like they're when they're at their best, they're among the best lines in the league at. Um, like expected goals for versus against like Corsi, everything they, they run the show. Obviously there's, they're deployed in the offensive zone. They don't take matchups, but they're one of the highest scoring lines in the league when they're firing and they weren't like Pedersen. What has he missed before this year? About eight months or something with no training camp, no games. And he's going to come in. He's going to be rusty. That makes sense. But you got to get these players used to playing with each other again. And they were all over the place. These, the top three players, the top line, they didn't get a chance to play. And it just seemed silly. We know what their potential is when they get to play together. So let them get back into that rhythm as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I tend to agree with you, Trent on, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Like the, the line produced and they were probably a top five line when they're really going. I mean, you think of the top line in Toronto, the top line in Boston, obviously Colorado, and then outside of, you know, the Canucks top line, the lotto line, and you know, I'm trying to think around the league, maybe the Vegas top line when they're firing in all cylinders, that's probably your top five lines in all of hockey. I do find it interesting though, because I think when they made the trade for Jason Dickinson, it was automatically assumed that he was going to slot in to be your third line, but all throughout training camp, it really did look like they wanted to actually do the three C's of Horvat. PD and Miller and have a top nine as opposed to a top six. And I know this is something Pete has beat to death on this podcast and Hey, I champion it all the way through, but do you think that, you know, there could be some potential for this team to actually ice a top nine and have three solid lines that could potentially put the puck in the net once PD gets up to speed, because I was at the game last night. And at times, Petey looked good, but my biggest takeaway from Petey's game right now, he's not up to game speed. He's trying to do things, and it's like his brain is thinking before his body's moving. So he's trying to like make a, a deke or a pass before 
his body's able to do it. I think, you know, it might take another week or so before he finally gets up to game speed. But yeah, what are your thoughts on actually trying to establish your top nine for this team moving forward? So the first thing I want to touch on is in the training camp, you were saying they weren't playing um, Dickinson necessarily as a third line center. Was that because Pedersen wasn't in the lineup? That's a good and point. They, I, they I, had I, to I shake know. things up a little bit and put Miller in the center just to, I'm not sure. I didn't pay super, super close to the uh, training camp lineups. It's, I don't know. I don't see a lot of value in it beyond like depth guys. Yeah. But that, that was my first thought there. But as far as deploying a top nine, we kind of saw a little bit of it last night without Dickinson. Uh, Miller was playing center again and he was playing, he was with pod Colson and Besser, I believe. Correct. Yeah. They, and they looked good when they were on the ice for the short amount of times they, yeah. they created a decent amount of chances. I was, that would be, I wouldn't hate it if he was a third line center with players like that. But the issue is again, now you've got your best winger playing a third line role. Like he's just not getting the same ice time to me. Your best player should be spending as much time with the other best players and as much time on the ice as possible. And if you have nine guys splitting top two line deployment, you're just your best guys aren't out there nearly as much. In my opinion, I think I can't remember if the season had started, if it was right before, but I was saying Jason Dickinson might be the most important acquisition the Canucks made via trade or free agency all summer, simply because he can take, theoretically, he can take the matchup roles away from um, Bo Horvat and allow a top six to feast upon weaker minutes. And we know Horvat can pop off and his game isn't, he, he plays a defensive matchup but that's not necessarily his bread and butter. Like we see how good he can be on the power play when he's not worrying about defense. And I think if you have Dickinson and have someone that can be a reliable defensive third line center to allow your skilled top six to go out and score goals, I feel like it's a no brainer and green should be doing that. Obviously he wasn't healthy in the last game. And last I heard, we didn't have an update on Dickinson, but hopefully he's not long gone. And we can uh, get back to that scene. I mean, Dickinson is build is is more of a two way player, um, but has better uh, upside than what we've seen out of some of our bottom six guys in the, the last few years. So, I, I think with the the supporting cast of wingers, there's a chance that when everyone's healthy and going a bit more, you you can get a little more juice out of that third line. Um, just another note with Brock Besser. Um, I agree. You shouldn't be playing on the third line. He is by far and away right now, the team leader in relative Corsi. Like it's not even close. Uh, he is just, he's that good. And he's had a great camp and he's one of those guys that you need to be playing more. Um, one of my thoughts, and I, I'm just kind of curious what you guys think about this is I'm always a fan of a, like consistency, right? Like the more I do something and the more I do something in a certain way or in a certain environment, the more comfortable I get at it and the better I get at it. And we see a lot of times there's these kind of weird lines to start the game and then they get shuffled in the first and shuffled in the second and shuffled in the third. And you've got everyone, you know, Matthew Highmore is all of a sudden with Pedersen and then he's with Atlamico. And it's just like, it's, do you guys think that if there was a little more stability, like just being like, Hey, let's try these lines. These are the lines on paper that we kind of envisioned. Let's roll with this for a few games come hell or high water. Do you guys think there's any merit to that? I definitely do. I think, like you said, the 
repetition you get like that's the only way you're going to build chemistry with guys like um i know green was saying a while ago that he uses hoglander like a spark plug or whatever to get different lines going and that's all good and great but i feel like you're not maxing out hoglander that way like he's he he could be one of the best players on this team like definitely a top six guy but he doesn't have he doesn't have a two other line mates let alone one that he plays every game with um, like Pearson, why can't there be a Pearson to Horvat for Hoglander? He's, he's all over the map. He's top, he's bottom six guy, top six guy, middle six guy. He's all over the place. I feel like if you want to build chemistry, you need to let chemistry build. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I think just because a line is struggling five on five to start a game to automatically just shuffle the lines and put them in the blender, isn't going to solve the issue more often than not. I would actually like to see the Canucks do more line juggling on the power play because I think the power play is actually very stale at the moment. They keep trying to do the behind the net pass up to Bo for that one timer, or you've got Miller coming off the half wall and he usually passes it over to Hughes, who is looking for a one timer or Petey. I would actually like to see them mix up the, and they have with Besser going to the second unit now, but I'd like to see them mix it up a little bit more because I, I actually feel that it's the power play that you should be experimenting with a little bit more because they're the line that seems really stale at the moment, in my opinion. I actually was thinking about that and I was, I was maybe going to write a piece on what I think they should do, but. It, obviously it's very stale. Like it, it's almost getting exhausting to watch like uh, Miller over to Hughes who passes it to Pedersen and it's not quite in the wheelhouse and he passes it back. And there's just, the shot isn't there. There's it's like you said, it's stale. It's almost boring to watch the power play at some points. And I was trying to think what they could do to fix it without like chase on. has been good. And I don't want to get down on the guy too bad, but <laughs> he, there it goes back to being like playing your best players. Like he's, he's with a healthy Canucks lineup. I don't know if he's even on the team, let alone the, the power play. And I was almost thinking you should put Pedersen in Miller's spot on his downhill side. Cause then it's going to force Pedersen to be more creative. It's going to allow him to skate with the puck moving close instead of just stand there and wait for the absolute perfect pass. Um, I noticed too, like Pedersen's shot, it, it just, it's not there. He's not firing on all cylinders yet. And they're shading less over to him now. Like they're not even covering the same way they have in the past. I think if you switched him to his downhill side and put Besser on the opposite side, Besser's wrist shot is his bread and butter. It always has been. It, it takes away one timer, options when you do that but it doesn't it's not like we're scoring on the one timer anyway <laughs> i think the only thing with that is jt miller likes to have the power play run through him i think if you put him on the second line and then either hoglander or garland someone pesky good in close in front of the net leave um hughes and horvat where they are i feel like that is going to increase movement which is it's why the power play is so stale. Nobody's moving everything. Like I can tell you exactly how the next power play is going to go. Like I, it's not even for two days or whatever it is. And I can tell you exactly what it's going to look like. But if you switch those players in those positions, I feel like it's going to allow for more movement. And that's not to say 
Pedersen or Besser won't be able to take a one-timer because you can cycle. If you watch a team like the Oilers where they load up their top power play with their best players, they're all over the place. You don't have Connor McDavid standing in one spot. You have him all over the ice, switching with dry sidle, switching with all the other players. And those are, those are the power plays that score. The ones that create havoc, get players out of position, open up, get the goalie moving East West. I, I think Again, it's thinking a little bit hard to put Chase on in there when you have two, maybe not as good a net front front presences, but better all-around players that can allow for more cycle. You put Chase on in front of the net, you're not necessarily going to want him to slide out to Pedersen's spot to be taking one-timers. You want him in one spot. You want Pedersen in one spot. And I think that is the problem with the power play. I don't know about you guys. Well, it's it's kind of ties into my big beef with uh, the power play at the moment is that it, it's it sets up as a diamond with a point shot. It's very much you get your shooters in their spots and they they are meant to take the shot. Now, the problem with that, especially where they're lining up, which is generally high face off circles or or from the point is if you're especially if you're on that angle, you're taking that shot, you have to hit the net. Because as soon as if you don't, you are now is going around. Now your guy who's on the other point shot has got to go into the boards. He's getting rushed. It's a rush pass to the point. The defenseman now has speed. They're coming to the point and it pushes the puck all the way around to the perimeter. Um, my thought, uh, I, and I, I've kind of gone back and forth with this, maybe on the second unit. Do you think 2D on the second unit? I think we definitely have the personnel right now. If uh, like OEL has been playing quite well um, and we have Rathbone as well. Both of those, like all three of those options are options that you could play on first or second unit. The issue becomes on the second unit. Now you have one defender or a lesser defender up there with them. And when you hit five on five again, now you're stuck out there four forwards and one defender or your second unit's kind of watered down a little bit. But I like the idea of having two big defensemen up top. It's a little old school. It's a bit of a throwback. Yeah, I, I would definitely like to see them move one of Horvat or Miller to the second unit because, I mean, I know Dowling was out last night or he got hurt last night, I believe. Um, but Dowling's on your second unit just because he can take face-offs. Like, to me, that doesn't seem very efficient as far as deploying the best players possible to try to get you a goal. And to be honest, I think the second unit more than more often than not this year has looked more dangerous on the power play with the limited amount of time they've had in comparison to the first unit. I I like the idea of having maybe Rathbone and OEL out there for the second unit power play. I I think there's some potential there. Um, But yeah, right now, like I said, I I would be trying to ruffle things up there a little bit more. I, I think you bring up a really good point, Trent, that I understand the idea of parking chase on in front of the net to be that nut for net front presence, but he's an anchor. He's not moving. You know, it's not like he's going to peel off and get into a shooting position and try to, you know, go top shelf on the opposing goalie. He's just going to park his ass in front of the goalie and just wait for, you know, a great play. Like we saw last night, that beautiful pass from PD. Um, But even then, you know, I mean, that was a really tired unit with a broken stick for the Minnesota wild that the Canucks finally scored on You know, I think everyone last night was like, okay, like this unit's been out this entire power play. They're one of their defenders doesn't have a stick and he hadn't had a stick for nearly 45 seconds of that power play. And they finally get the puck in the back of the net. Uh, there, I, I, that is the one part where I think green could and should be more creative. Absolutely. 
yeah like like i said earlier like it 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 is working with chase on like what does he have now two power play goals i believe so yeah and so it like it's not necessarily broken but i think it's it's about to be and like you said he's an anchor on a power play that already is famous for not having any movement and we have guys like in hoglander and garland who are good in tight spaces and when you have like you were saying chase on isn't going to peel away from the net for a shooting um to position himself for a shot you have hoglander who can score from behind the net like we've seen him in the world juniors in the shl i think he's done the michigan a couple of times like we have players that can score in creative ways in close to the net and they're getting deployment on the second power play if they're getting deployment at all and that's why i think you I again, I think it's just thinking way too hard putting Chase on up there. It's certainly remnants of last year, isn't it? Uh, just it does have that feeling. Here's a question for you guys another hot button topic for Canucks fans and Travis Green's deployment of players. Uh, what have you guys thought of the deployment or the ice time that Pod Colson's been getting so far in the NHL? And if he continues to get less than 10 minutes a game, is he not better served to end up in Abbotsford playing with his boy Klimovich, who is continually ripping it up for the Canucks, the baby Canucks? Yeah, that's that is a tough one because that was the knock on the KHL with Pod Colson, right? He wasn't getting deployment. And it's it's tough because I'm I'm not the best with prospects and development, but I've heard some people saying that. Pod Colson has learned everything he can in lesser leagues and he just needs to get his rep in the big, like in the NHL. But that said, there's different ice size. There's a different style of game over here. It could be beneficial to put him down there and let him rip it up for a while. But is what he's going to be learning down there going to transition into the NHL? I, I believe it's Thomas Drance is pushing for just letting him play 10 minutes a night, just routinely just get comfortable with the NHL, learn, and eventually he'll make it. The thing is the Canucks fans, we've been spoiled. We had Pedersen walk right in and number one center. We had Hughes walk right in and he's the number one defender. We had Besser walk right in and he's our number one winger. We had Hoglander walk right in and now he's the spark plug for the whole team, just one after the other. And now we have a rookie that might be taking a more traditional entrance into the league. And I think I'm not too worried about Pod Colson because this is how rookies are supposed to come into the league. They're supposed to come traditionally, quote unquote, they're supposed to come in on the fourth line, earn their minutes, work their way up. And I mean, we have a pretty solid top with everyone healthy. We have a pretty solid top line, top nine as it is. We don't necessarily need Pod Colson to be coming in and being an all-star right away. We can develop him slower, but if he got sent to the AHL and was put on a top line there just to get some reps, I have no problem with that. The Canucks have had 22 skaters through their first seven games and the average ice time for pod Colson is the lowest on the team. He's one of only two guys who averages less than 10 minutes a game with Lamico being the other one. So he's dead last of the 22 guys. I think the only way that you would send him to the AHL right now, in my opinion, is if there's, a squeeze on the roster. Maybe some of these guys that get called up or come in for injuries or aren't waiver exempt, just look really good. And the team wants to see a little bit more about them. I mean, they're obviously 
you know, still stinging with losing a couple guys on waivers, Gadjevich, I think in particular. So I think that would be maybe the only way is you look at a guy who is waiver exempt. And, you know, you mentioned all these great rookies, uh, but we have another rookie on this team this year who I has really impressed the heck out of me. And I'm biased as all hell with Jack Rathbone, but do you have any thoughts on, on him? Cause this is, you know, you talk about a guy who's, you know, all these other guys, the previous four that you mentioned, they're all kind of more, more game breakers, more noticeable guys like pod Colson certainly hasn't been overly noticeable. Um, again, he's got limited ice time. Rathbone, I think has been more noticeable and him and Burroughs is a third pairing. I think has been a real pleasant surprise for the organization. Don't you? Yeah, I've, I was very excited when Rathbone got a shot last season and he played well in the few games he did see. And he's almost like a Quinn Hughes light. Like he may, he doesn't have the same pedigree as Quinn Hughes, but he's, he's got all like the same playbook. He's just not quite as good in every category. And that's not, that's not a problem. He's, he's great. I, I've been really impressed with him. Obviously uh, the Minnesota game wasn't exactly the strongest one, but again, he's a rookie. He's going to have down days. I didn't see Kyle Burroughs um, as a partner coming at all i thought that luke shen was actually going to wind up with a regular role on the team by the end of the year but no i burrows is he's impressed there's no reason he should be coming out and when i saw that hamannick news that he's coming back i was almost i don't want to say i was disappointed because it's good we need hamannick but then that means a guy like burrows is going to come out and i don't feel like he's done anything to lose that position um yeah i've been very happy with rathbone and to a lesser degree but uh, Kyle Burrows as well. Yeah. Outside of last night's game against Minnesota, I think they've both played very well. They struggled last night for sure, but that was also because Tucker Pullman got hurt and the Canucks were playing five D. So I think that also kind of put a little bit more on their lap as far as load management goes and having to play more minutes and potentially outside their comfort zone. Look, I'm really excited for Jack Rathbone and I think he's played very well. And I, I, I don't, He's played relatively well, I'll say. And I don't think we've seen his best yet uh, so far this season. I think he's still slowly finding his way. But Kyle Burrows, I mean, that's found money. Like, the guy has been great. Like, you know, unexpected. Like you said, Trent, I don't think anyone expected him to come into training camp and to make, you know, as much of an impact as he did. And even in training camp, you, you always kind of take anything that a player does there, especially a player that you don't expect to make the team with a little bit of a grain of salt. But... Kyle Burroughs, I mean, so far the games he's played in the NHL, he looks like he do, he belongs. And I agree, we definitely need more depth on the right side. And having Hamannick come back will help this team. But it sucks if Kyle Burroughs ends up in the press box because of it, because I think he's deserved every minute he's gotten so far uh, in the NHL. He has the lowest average ice time amongst all Canuck defensemen, yet he leads the team in blocks and hits. So he's doing something out there. He is noticeable. Um, Travis Hamnick certainly is, uh, is an interesting one now. I mean, we, we've been saying all along that we are, our right side is, is hurting. And now we got a guy who's a, supposed to be one of our top four defensemen coming back on the right side. And we're all like, well, how's this gonna, how's this gonna work now? Um, Cause it does seem that Burroughs would be the most likely guy to come out. Wouldn't you say? And I mean, like, do you guys, think like I don't think there's a rush to bring Travis Hamannick back he's already cleared waivers I mean you want to play this guy in Abbey for a little while to get him up to speed don't you yeah I wouldn't be rushing to bring him back um 
last year, Hamannick, he missed train. Well, last year, whatever the previous season, whenever that was it, uh, he missed the training camp in the middle of summer or whatever. I don't, that last year at, really threw at me some through point a in some point in the last two <laughs> yeah. years, uh, yeah. it all, it all goes into a blender <laughs> as well. We're like the Travis green of, of times right now. Yeah. It, <laughs> um, Hamannick, he missed the camp. He was signed on the PTO and everything, but it took him a long time to round into game form and it happened again. He missed camp and now he's missed games in the regular season. If he's like you said, he's already cleared waivers. He's in the AHL. I would leave him there. I would until he's pounding on the door to get in the lineup or we have an injury. I would just let him until he's hundred percent Travis Hamannick that we know and need. I would just leave him there. We are, our defense is fine as it is on the right side. I don't think he's an immediate upgrade on any of the players we have there. So I wouldn't take a risk personally. Hamannick was also, I think, the first player to opt out of the bubble as well. So he didn't play during the whole summer of whatever, the summer of Edmonton, I'll call it, um, in the bubble. And then, uh, yeah, like you said, he signed with the Canucks on a PTO come January, uh, missed a decent portion of training camp but it did take him a while to get his legs back under him the one little thing that i'm a little bit worried about about him potentially getting rushed into the lineup is if the tucker poolman injury ends up being multiple games or multiple weeks then there could be obviously a little bit more of a press to get hammock back in the lineup and maybe he just does one or two game conditioning stint and then they put him back up so it'll be interesting to see uh, I don't know if you guys heard any news today. I didn't uh, on the Pullman injury, if it's long-term or if it was just he got banged up in last night's game and uh, he hopefully will be ready to go tomorrow night in Philly. Or not in Philly, against Philly. Yeah, I haven't uh, haven't heard yet, but uh, I've been running around all day today, so I'm, I'm a little bit behind on on the news. But you guys, you know, you talk about, we talk about Travis Hamannick. You know, since he became a Canuck, he's only played 38 games. Um, in total, he's only played 38 games for the Vancouver Canucks. Um, not a huge sample size. And that's from the start of the 2020 season. So what was that? I guess that was bubble season, right? Like, um, uh, so not a lot of, not a lot of time with, uh, with the team. Um, or no, I guess that would have been before the bubble. Wouldn't I, I don't know. It's, it's, it would have been <laughs> after the bubble, after uh, the bubble, after the blender the years. Yeah. Cause yeah. he opted out of the bubble and then it was because again, I mean, the season last year, the the season, because again, you also had the bubble season, but the official season last year didn't start till January. So that's when he joined them on a PTO. It was near the end of training camp. I think it was like one or two days after, uh, left in training camp. He signed a PTO. Yeah, 38, 38 games, though. I mean, geez, if this was a bad religion song, it would be Blenderhead right now because I'm getting <laughs> uh, very confused by it all. Um yeah, I mean, the Poolman injury, uh, Luke Shen hasn't done a lot. I mean, he's only played one game. Um, it just, it would be a shame right now if uh, if everyone is healthy. I mean, you know, Kyle Burroughs does seem like uh, the man out to for for, uh, for him to come in. But uh, again, I like I said, he's cleared waivers now. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. You can, you can play him in Abbey and yeah, you're paying him a lot of money to be down there, but you know, get them up to speed. We've seen like, we've seen the rust that PD's had from not playing a lot over the last uh, year or so as well. Like uh, it, it takes a while. I mean, we're not going to see any situation where Travis Hamannick just finds, Hey, I'm ready. Let's go. Puts on his skates and comes back in his immediate top four defenseman. I, I don't think that's realistic. No, I would, I would agree. I, yeah, I didn't think about the Pullman thing. Um, hopefully it's not long 
And we do already have Shen up here if it is going to be just a short uh, window that he's going to miss. But yeah, it just, I don't know. Hamannick, I don't see him just jumping in and being a game changer and making the defense better than what we had with um, with the players we were playing as it was. So I think I'm, I'm with you. I would just leave him down there, let him round into form, don't rush him. And if he knocks down the door and Burroughs isn't playing well, then swap him. But right now, Burroughs is playing quite well. So we've only seen seven games of the the players that we brought in from Arizona. Uh, but what do you make of Connor Garland and OEL so far? That's that I look at it in two different windows. Right now, it's great. OEL has been playing really well. We don't have uh, Beagle, Louie, and Roussel on the books. And Garland is, he's like the, he's what JT Miller was when we traded for JT Miller. He came in and he's better than anyone could have expected. And so right now it's great. I like it. Love it. But in four years, uh, we'll see if OEL is still what he is right now. They, those two make the team better than they were last year, even without the subtractions of the other players. But it's, it just, that contract scares me and running right in line with Tyler Myers, who's they're both of their aging curves are going to line up at the same time together. And what are they combined? Like 13 million against the cap or something somewhere in that range. It, it scares me, but at this point right now, there's, there's not a lot to complain about. What do you think the window is for this current core though? Like, would you not say that the next four years is probably when you would be wanting to go for it with PD Hughes, Horvat. I mean, Miller and Horvat come off the books in two years. Um, I know there's a lot of speculation whether or not you'll be able to sign both. Besser gets a big qualifying offer at the end of this year. So isn't the window kind of in the next three, four years for this team anyways? And so if you get the next four solid years out of OEL, it's kind of a wash if you can you know, go on a legitimate playoff run. I would agree that is like that is the window that if if we don't if the Canucks aren't playing well like it's going to be hard to keep all the players they're going to want out and understandably so but the thing is what we just ended our window we gave it an end point the window's just opening you would say like the team is going to start rounding into form in the next year or two we've been saying that for like five years but we have the pieces now that this team could be good but in four years now, if OEL ages like NHL defensemen regularly age, now we've put an end point on that window. There's We've seen like Tampa Bay, they're in the third year of beyond that. They've won two back-to-back cups. People are saying they should have won one before that. They're, they're the favorite to win this year again. Like Just because you have a window to win and you want to win doesn't mean it has to end right away. And having players like Myers and OEL fingers crossed they don't age poorly and they're make their money or they earn their money right through their contracts but if they don't now we just have more louis erickson's and jay beagles and all these other contracts that are going to weigh down the books even tanner pearson has the potential to be that the it just seems like you're the window's just opening why are we starting to close it on the back end at the same time I think there, I mean, I've always said the OEL Garland deal for me, Garland was the centerpiece of that trade. Uh, OEL was the risk and 
on the same note is that trade is only going to be weighed by how well OEL plays. His contract is buyoutable towards the end. If you wanted to cut the last couple of years out, it's it, it's doable. It's, you know, it's it's not the best situation. But if you're to buy out his last couple of years, it's got you got two years at a four point one cap hit and two years at a one point five. So you are able to free up some space. It's not ideal, but it's certainly nothing like what Minnesota did with uh, Suter and Parise. So uh, there there is some wiggle room there. But th- yeah, this that trade, it's going to live and die by what OEL does. And I think you're right with uh, OEL Myers and Pearson. The f- complaint that a lot of fans have is that that puts the squeeze on what the team can do. And that's also putting the importance of being able to have guys continuously come in on entry level deals, which means that you got to have draft picks, which of course we traded away a couple of firsts. So this is where Canucks Twitter and Canucks fans get really divided over uh, the state of the team. But um, I do think that if OEL can make it through at least four years of his deal and Connor Garland does what he does, I'm not worried about that. I think he's on a great deal. Um, then I think this trade will age well. But really, as much as I say Garland was a centerpiece, and I said that when it happened, this trade comes down to what sort of lifespan we get out of OEL. I saw when this trade first went down, um, when it was first happening, and remember it took like, it felt like two days for the trade to actually break in its in its entirety. Once the dust had settled, initially I didn't like it. Like, I didn't like the risk attached to OEL. I liked Garland. I didn't like giving up a first. But then uh, it was the Hockey Sport podcast. They sent out a tweet that said, if you just reframe the trade and all the pieces a little bit as three separate trades, it feels a lot better. If you trade a first and Erickson for Garland, that's not that's not a bad trade. You're, you're trading away a bad contract and an overpay for a player that could be in your top six. And then you are trading a seventh round pick for OEL. That sounds fine. They're retaining $1.2 million. It's a risk, but again, it's only costing you a seventh. And then Beagle, Roussel, and a second round pick just to clear a cap. Again, that doesn't sound too bad. All mm-hmm. of that tied in together is that those are all the pieces that moved in the trade. When you break it up like that, it doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so scary because you're clearing all the cap off the books and everything. But when it all came down all at once, it was the OEL thing really scared me, but obviously like you got to give, I'm not the biggest Benning guy, but you got to give credit to him. What he saw in OEL, it's paying off. Like he's, he may not be prime OEL at this point, but he's a lot better than he was in Arizona the last few years. Well, and if the rumors from last year are to believe to be true, apparently the asking price from Arizona for the Canucks to acquire OEL last off season was starting with Thatcher Demko and thank God Benning walked away. Right. I mean, obviously that, that would have been brutal. I I do wonder with the trade like this and I get it. I I think both of you hit the nail on the head that the success of this trade for the Canucks standpoint is going to solely rely on how well OEL performs over the course of this contract. But how do you grade trades like this? Like, do you grade the trade until OEL's deal is completely off the books can you say, hey, if we get four or five solid years out of OEL, it's a win? I mean, even the JT Miller trade, I know now the criticism of that trade is, is that the Canucks went a little too early in trying to acquire a player like JT Miller, and they still weren't ready to give up the kind of assets they did to get someone like JT Miller, even though he's been 
a great success for this team, but you know, do you still, you know, how do you grade the trade? Like, do you, do you have to say it has to go to the course of that player's contract is done or you can say, Hey, you know what? Maybe the last two years of that player's contract we traded for are going to be a wash, but we got five solid years out of him or we got four solid years out of JT Miller or whatever it is. I, I always find it weird because everyone right now, the, the return looks great. OEL definitely looks like he's a new player and he looks like that Norris trophy candidate. He was a few years ago. Now, again, I'm not saying he's going to be nominated for the Norris this year by any means, but he's even playing with a bit of an edge, which I didn't even know was in his game. Like he's actually got like that kind of spark in his game, which you love to see. They've already put an A on his Jersey as well, which I think is great. And I know uh, Pete and I had Chris Faber on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he was saying when he was talking to a lot of the young guys in training camp, so many of them kept mentioning OEL's name, OEL's name. Um, so, yeah, I just wonder, you know, what do you guys think? Like, when can you actually grade a trade and say, hey, that was a good trade, even if maybe the last two years of that player being on your team isn't going to work out well, given what the money is, given what the, you know, the last two years are. But also, you know, let, let's call the glass half full here. There's potential that the by the time we get close to OEL's last couple of years of his contract, the salary cap could be over $10 million from what it is now. I think the only true way to properly grade a trade like that would be after the contract expires or the next step, but nobody's going to grade a trade in seven years. Like we'll, we'll be able to look back with hindsight and everything, but at this point today, the team is better and it's all fit under the cap. We didn't, it wasn't like last summer or the summer before that, whatever it was when, like Toffoli walked and everybody walked because we were so hung up on this guy. Nothing bad has happened so far. We got better players under the cap. We moved out worse players. Like at this point, the trade's a win. And if the Canucks go on to make deep runs in the playoff or dare I say it, win a Stanley cup under this contract, it's absolutely a win. They always say that about teams. Like it was, they used to say that about Chicago before they kind of retooled here and, poorly but when all their players were aging out everybody's like oh they were on such bad contracts these players are so old how did they get those well they won three cups like yeah those aren't bad contracts you won three cups they did their job and now you're in the back half of the life cycle of a team if the canucks enter the back half of that life cycle and they have nothing to show for it then it's an l but today all signs point to the team being better and on an upward trajectory and i Again, I don't really like betting, but you got to give them credit. So far, this looks like it's worked. I think the cup is the the ultimate way you win a trade. I mean, I, I remember you know Tampa Bay like, getting bringing in guys like Barkley Goodrow. I think they paid a first for him, and they paid a a first for someone else. Now that I can't I just blanking on who it is, but they gave up a couple of first for guys. I was like, hey, that's a lot to give up. Uh, uh, was it Blake Coleman? Was he on the team too? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think they gave up a first for him. Um, so the cup is the obvious one. Um, I do disagree that um, I think Canucks fans will certainly be talking about this trade in seven years. I mean, uh, <laughs> with, uh, we, with this trade will be talked about forever. Um, it, it is impossible to really ever truly grade a trade because once you start breaking it down into trade trees and pieces get flipped for other things and this and that, 
it gets really tough, which is why the only real true way to say you want to trade is if you win the cup, I, I think. Um, but again, if you can get a, a Garland serviceable for his contract and you can get at least four years out of OEL and uh, not making him become an anchor, um, I think uh, overall it's it's pretty good. It also depends on what Arizona gets with those draft picks though, right? So uh, you never know. It does certainly trade, as we all know, the, the short-term pains for possible long-term pains. But um, OEL has impressed me so far. I, uh, and I like, uh, like you know, Doug, uh, what you were saying with Faber, I like what um, a lot of the guys are saying, and uh, especially with having a few young Swedes coming up. I, get, I mean, a guy like Victor Pearson could really be, influenced by um oel uh, as well hey um just before we let you go here um one thing we haven't talked about we we briefly mentioned him before is thatcher demko um and, and what do you what do you guys think uh thatcher demko so far this season he's now i'm um i'm no quadrelli so i don't have all the all the details of his play and everything but he he looks great like he was he was probably the best player in the game against Minnesota last night. Like he's, he was making great saves. I don't think he's had a bad game yet. I, he's probably the most important player on this team this year. Like there's been like hoglander has been really good. Like you said, Rathbone Burroughs, there's, there's been good players, but Demko has been the most important. He, he may not be the Markstrom of a few years ago where like this team is absolute trash without him, but he's, held the Canucks through periods that they shouldn't have been in. Like, I don't, he's been great. I feel like he's earning every cent of that contract that he just got. Yeah. I I think Demko is easily the Canucks MVP through the first seven games. Uh, He's been their most consistent player. He was definitely the best player on the ice for the Canucks last night. Uh, He's, he is going to be what dictates how far this team could go if they make it to the playoffs, in my opinion. I I think given the division they're in and it being a weak Pacific division, although you got teams like San Jose, you know, playing over (laughs) their heads right now. So who knows how weak the division is? I mean, everyone's projected number one is in the basement right now in Vegas. And I know obviously injuries are playing, uh, dictating that. But yeah, I think Demko has easily been the Canucks MVP this year. And I think it'll be on his shoulders, uh, how far this team could go in the playoffs. I really do. I mean, you saw bubble Demko last in the bubble, right. And how great he was playing and essentially solidified Jim Benning's choice, which again, I think is, and again, I'm with you, Trent. I'm not the biggest Jim Benning fan, but I do think at times he's copped unfair criticism and he's never been given credit for some of the things he has done. Right. But the decision to stay with Demko and let Markstrom walk, given what Markstrom was wanting and demanding, I mean, that's probably the best move Benning has made in his entire tenure as the GM of the Vancouver Canucks, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I don't think anyone um, is really questioning Demko or his uh, ability. I mean, it sucked to lose Marky, but I mean, on the books, it made, and looking at their their ages, it made a ton of sense. Um, I don't think we've seen Demko necessarily steal a game this year, but that's not by any fault of his own. He's made great saves in every game. He's not a liability back there. He doesn't let, and I hope I don't jinx this now. He doesn't let in those, uh, those softies, you know, those ones that kind of squeak through him. He doesn't seem to do that. The goals that go in on him, it's generally, it's, it's, you know, he's, he gives up a bad rebound or he's just under a firing squad and acting like a fish out of water out there and trying to do whatever he can to keep the puck out. But uh, I, I have no qualms with the way Demko's played. 
Well, the other big thing that I feel like Demko has done this year is he has not given up that backbreaking goal to the opposition. You know, he's made a couple of huge saves that one against Seattle where he pulled it off the goal line. Like he's, he has held the team in there where again, he hasn't stolen a game to your point, Pete, but he hasn't given up that, you know, second two goal lead or whatever. He's kept it a one goal game for the Canucks to try to claw their way back and at least salvage a point, if not the two points. And that is another thing that I think Demko deserves a ton of praise for this year. Yeah. Like you said, he hasn't necessarily stolen a game yet, but he hasn't lost a game. He's held them in games. They shouldn't have been like, he's given them a chance every single night. And that that's, that's all you can ask of your goaltender and anything beyond that is it's, found money like you you can't expect that every night and you shouldn't expect that every night and yeah it it did suck to lose Markstrom but I'm after I saw what he got in Calgary I don't think the Canucks could have responsibly done that and especially with a guy like uh, Di Pietro like if Halak gets hurt or even Demko gets hurt like Mikey's gonna get a run and I think he's ready I I I if Halak didn't have the no movement clause, I could see Di Pietro taking the backup role this year, but kind of gets a, a little hairy bringing three goaltenders up full time. But Demko has he's looked every every bit worth the money of his new contract. I I have no complaints about Demko. He's again he's doing everything you could possibly ask of a goaltender. Yeah, and Halak comes in at a low cap hit bonus laden deal. It's a one year deal. It's a security blanket. And yeah, okay, no movement clause, whatever. The guy's the guy's what thirty six years old. He's been in the league forever. I don't care. I don't think you should trade Halak this year, anyways. I don't think you're in any rush with Di Pietro. Di Pietro comes up if there's an emergency. But remember, this is a guy who, again, over the last couple of years, he hasn't gotten steady playing time, and the organization is very. I, I think they're setting up very well to go with a Demko Di Pietro split for the coming years. And then what you, what you do after that, I mean, is, is anyone's guess because you got Demko locked up for, for four more years after this one. But I, I, I like the way they handle it right now. And I like that Di Pietro is going to be capable to come up if he needs to, but you also don't need to, you can get this guy just playing games and playing a lot of games right now. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not saying Di Pietro should come up, but I'm saying he's absolutely ready to, should he get that call? Um, the only thing it's a, it's a little nitpicky, but with the Halak deal, I think doesn't his cap hit almost double if he plays 10 games, like he has a relatively large signing bonus at that point. There's a whole bunch of bonuses in there. I'm not sure of the, uh, the exact details of it all. Um, but I do know that. Yeah, there's okay. So there it is. It's 1.25 for 10 games, which he'll more than likely hit. Um, and uh, 250 bonus for a 905 save percentage, which I think he's got a good shot of. So, what if I understand correctly, because uh, he's in the 35 plus contract, is he hits both of those, which I think it's most likely he will, that carries a one and a half million dollar cap hit onto next year. Uh, if the Canucks don't have the space for it this year, I think, yeah, and now again. We didn't know how Di Pietro was going to be playing, how he was going to look after missing so many games last year. Like he went an insane, I can't remember the number, but he went so long without getting a start. So you can't just throw the backup role onto him. But now that we've seen him play a little bit, like he could have done it. It would have been irresponsible to 
hope and ask him to do it. So for that reason, I don't, I don't mind the Halak deal at all, but with the benefit of hindsight, we didn't need the Halak deal. I don't think personally, but uh, it's, it's definitely good insurance. Like God forbid one of those two get hurt. And now you're looking at probably Arthur Silov, which I don't know if he, he's not NHL ready yet. So having three goalies that could play in the NHL comfortably, I don't think is a bad thing, especially if you're looking to make the playoffs and hopefully do a little bit of damage this year. Mm-hmm. And, and the Canucks right now do have cap space to absorb Halak's bonuses, uh, whether they stick with that throughout the year or not remains to be seen, but um. I, I have, I have no issue with that. I like having the veteran in there. It's just, again, it, it takes a little bit of pressure. And I mean, he's also a guy you can learn from this guy's being around the league. He's being in all sorts of situations. And uh, I, I think he, from what I understand, he's a good character guy as well. So I don't have issues with that. And again, it sets it up for what I think is going to be a really interesting few years with, uh, with Demko and Di Pietro, the killer D's, the double D's. There's going to be some uh, some fun we can have with that. Uh, hey, Trent, we're going to have to let you go here. Uh, we are running out of time and uh, just wanted to kind of hand it over to you and just uh, let us know if, what is going on in the world of Trent Leith. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, yeah, this was a blast. I can't believe we're already out of time. Um, yeah, I like you said, I write for a website called stadiumchinatown.ca. Um, we usually have about two articles going up a week. Um, you can find us, like you said, at stdm underscore Chinatown. Um, and we also have a newsletter. If you don't want to go follow us on Twitter, you can just sign up your email once a month or once a week. Sorry, you'll just get links to the articles that we wrote. We, we're not going to spam you. We're not going to email you all the time. Just... They're there if you want to see them. Um, yeah, personally, I'm at Trentel14 on Twitter. Uh, I write with Braden Fangler. I don't know his Twitter handle off the top of my head, but it's a pretty <laughs> unique name. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. Just trying to watch as much hockey as I can and try and pump out an article or two a week. Uh, Braden's uh, Twitter is his name, so uh, that, that, that's you know that's that's kind of funny. <laughs> I, I had to look it up there. Goes to show how much I know. No, thanks, sir. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Trent. Uh, it's always great just to uh, to chat Canucks with people who uh, look at the team, you know, without rose-colored glasses, but without uh, you know just thinking everything's on fire. We like to kind of tread a, a line in the middle, and just when you can do that and have discussions like this about the team, uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. I always say I have tragic optimism for this team. <laughs> that's that's I think a lot of us do. That's a great. I was going to say it. I think that best describes the majority of Canuck fans, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Well, I'm, every year I go, this is going to be their year. And it's never their year. <laughs> I fall for it every every time. I also yeah. I also think that should be the name of this episode, Tragic Optimism. <laughs> well, I like it. I'm uh, writing that down. There we go. Um, it also reminds me, there's a, there's a great line in Ted Lasso. There's a lot of great lines in Ted Lasso, but it's, a, uh, it's the hope that kills you. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I think I, Toronto's feeling that too this year. Oh, if we wanted to get into that, we'd have to do. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to do another episode for that because I got a lot of thoughts on this, and uh, it is glorious. <laughs> Sounds good. Maybe next time. Right on. Hopefully, they're still in the same situation uh, next time. Cheers, yeah. cheers, Trent. Thanks for joining us, uh, and we'll have to do this again soon. Right on. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers.
See ya. Bye. All right, it's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment. And I just wanted to talk about, I brought it up in the intro, but I'm going to talk about it again, just the in-game experience of going to the game, getting to watch hockey with your own eyes live. I didn't realize, well, no, that's a lie. I did realize how much I missed it, but I didn't realize until I was actually at the game how much I actually missed it. And yes, we all complained about the overpriced beers, the stale popcorn, the the bathroom lineups, all that stuff. But just to be in a building surrounded by fellow Canuck fans cheering your team on, it, it was awesome. I, there, early in the game, I don't know if you were able to hear it on the TV, but the fans were chanting PD, 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 which was great because obviously, you know, unfortunately PD's been struggling a little bit. But it was just nice to have that raucous crowd supporting the players supporting the home team uh yeah i just it's something i really missed and obviously you know watching it from the comfort of your couch at home is great but nothing beats the in-game live experience yeah for sure although it was nice on saturday as well to get a bit of a crew together and and watch a game at the pub that felt like uh, a long time ago um, my free pour is also something Canucks related. How about that? We can talk about anything in the free pour. And we're both talking about Canucks. Um, but uh, I just wanted to mention, I named my first Canuck beer today. I was told at work, they're like, hey, you know, uh, we get a lot of people before and after the, the games here. They're like, bet if you put some Canucks names in there, it would be, uh, be pretty good sellers. I'm like... Heck yes, I can do that. So uh, kind of a nice simple one uh, today. It's going on tap tomorrow, so by the time this is out, you'll see Connor's Cascadian Dark Ale. And I chose that one specifically because a nice little alliteration, but also because Connor Garland spells his name different from Connor McDavid. That's going to piss off the Oilers fans. They'll be like, oh, hey, Connor has two ends. It's like, no, he doesn't. It's one end. And like, who are you talking about? Well, Connor Garland, of course. What, what do you think, man? Like, what other Connors are there? So anyways, Connor Garland. Garland gets the first one, but watch this space. So there'll be plenty more. I got a lot of ideas up there. Well, you are the pun master, Pete. So I can imagine there'll be a lot of Canuck beer puns coming our way. Oh yeah. There'll be some good ones. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 90 is just about in the books. And thanks again to Trent Leith for joining us. Uh, that, was a, that was a good chat. I think uh, I think we got to cover pretty much all the bases and what's going on around the team there. Yeah, it was a really great chat with Trent. Uh, I, I agree. We touched on goaltending, uh, Travis Hamanick, Petey's slow start, Travis Green's coaching deployment. It was like... We were all over. We, every every knob on the bingo card we were able to hit, which was great. And definitely check out him and Braden Fangler's fan blog site, stadiumchinatown.ca. Uh, they're putting articles, at least a couple articles out a week. Uh, you can also sign up for their newsletter. Uh, definitely worth checking out. 
And you can also find us online. I'm at Pete underscore gas. And also check out our Spotify playlist. We add tracks to it from all the outros we use. This will get added on as well. It's the Canuck Speakeasy outro playlist. You can find that on Spotify. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canuck Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego. Some